Yar. <laughs> Yar, me hotties. Where be the treasure? Shama? Where be the gold and silver? Yar. Oh, 在这边,过来吧. G'day everyone, I'm your host Stephen, and welcome to another episode of the Bamboo History Podcast. The Bamboo History Podcast is a podcast on Chinese and East Asian history. If you are into this kind of content, please subscribe to my podcast to keep on top of my content. I also have an Instagram too, at Bamboo History Podcast, that contains visual content for my episodes, as well as extra history content that aren't podcast episodes. Okay, now let's get straight into it. This week's episode is the first episode of another two-part series. And it will be a fun one, I hope, because it's going to be about pirates. The pirates we're going to talk about are the infamous East Asian war coal pirates, who, for hundreds of years, terrorized the coasts of China, Korea, and occasionally other places like the Philippines. If you grew up in a western country, you might be familiar with the pirates that ravaged the Atlantic and Caribbean seas, jumping aboard ships loaded with gold and other valuable goods and taking them all. You know, Jack Sparrow, Captain Hook, that weird parrot. Well, around the same time Jack Sparrow was jumping around boats, pirates were also doing damage in Asia. These pirates were known in East Asia as War Coal. War Coal, spelt W-O-K-O-U, can mean either Japanese pirates or dwarf pirates. In Korean, it is pronounced Wegu, and in Japanese, it's pronounced Wako. Our story about the War Coal will need to start in the 10th century. Now, China had always loved trading with other people, and for a long time they traded with other countries on land, via the Silk Road, and occasionally via the ocean. However, from the 10th century onwards, China began large-scale maritime trade with its neighbours in South Asia and Southeast Asia and beyond, during the Song Dynasty. In my opinion, it was due to two main reasons. The first one was that the Silk Road via land was cut off during the Song Dynasty because two other countries, the Liao and Xisha empires, occupied the lands that the Silk Road passed through to get to the Middle East. Hence, for the Song Chinese, they were forced to do most of their trade by sea. This led to the second main reason, and that was a need for bigger and better ships to conduct trade of larger quantities of goods and trade with countries further away. And the improvement of ships led to greater maritime trade activities during the Song Dynasty. But all this sea trade would mean lots of valuable goods on ships, and this created opportunities to steal some of the goodies. Enter our pirates. Before we continue with our story, we will need to make an important distinction. What we need to know is that piracy activities have always occurred on the coastlines of East Asia for as long as there have been opportunities to steal wealth and goodies. This occurred before the existence of the War Coal, and occurred after the War Coal piracy ended. The War Coal pirates have been defined specifically by historians 
as the pirates who were able to organize large groups of pirates and launch large-scale attacks on Chinese and Korean coastal settlements. War call pirate activity has also been defined as occurring in two major waves in two different time periods in history. The first wave of war call pirate activity occurred in the 1300s, whilst the second wave occurred in the 1600s. Let's start first by talking about the first wave of war call piracy. In the late 1200s, the Mongols conquered all of China and then conquered Korea, making the Koreans submit to them as a vassal state, which meant the Koreans could still rule by themselves but had to do whatever the Mongols in China asked them to do. After dealing with China and Korea, the Mongols looked at Japan and said, Submit to us and make us your master. The Japanese replied, No, get lost. The Mongols got mad, and in the years 1274 and 1281, they launched two large-scale invasions on Japan. The Mongols invaded and occupied the Japanese islands of Tsushima and Iki, the islands closest to the Asian mainland, and landed on Kyushu, an island on the main part of Japan. The Mongols, however, were ultimately not successful, and they retreated, but the places they had touched, like the islands of Tsushima, Iki, and parts of Kyushu, were left devastated by the Mongols. A Korean official named Kang Kwon Son had visited Japan around that period of time and noted that the islands of Tsushima and Iki did not have much land suitable for farming and hence the people on those islands were all naturally inclined to thievery. The Mongol invasion thus added fuel to the fire as it destroyed the lands fit for farming and forced many Japanese there into greater poverty. Many of the Japanese, especially on the islands of Tsushima, Iki, and on parts of Kyushu, were left with no means of survival, and hence many people from these affected regions turned to piracy. Yarrr. This marked the beginning of the first wave of war call piracy, and in this period, the war call pirates were mainly Japanese from the islands, such as Tsushima and Iki, as well as Kyushu. The main target for these pirates was Korea, known at that period of time as Goryeo. Goryeo, spelt G-O-R-Y-E-O. There's a lot of reasons why Korea was the main target. Korea was close to Japan, so it was easily accessible. Korea was also allied with the Mongols at the time, albeit against their will. And because of this, the Japanese also hated the Koreans as much as the Mongols for invading their country. Dr. Shidehara Akira comments, Begin quote. At the beginning of the Ashikaga period, our people in remote areas, being pinched for food, went to Korea with their home products in exchange for rice and beans. The Koreans did not accept this trade. It appeared to the Japanese that the Koreans could not defend themselves, and the Japanese saw no other way but to bring back the food by force. End quote. Korean sources record that, in the year 1377, during the second year of King Yu of Goryeo's reign, there were 39 recorded invasions of war call pirates. Then the following year, there were 54. Then 48 in the year after that. During King Yu's 14-year reign, 378 war call raids were recorded, which is on average 27 per year. The historical record of the Goryeo dynasty in Korea, the Goryeo-sa, 
or the history of Goryeo, described what the war call pirate raid looked like. Begin quote. The three provinces, Chola, Gyeongsang, and Yangwon, are the heart and breadbasket of our nation. Since the were thieves have come far inland, carried away our people, and set fire to our local government storehouses, a thousand li of our land have been turned into a desolate plain. So our people in these regions are exhausted. This indeed is a time of emergency. End quote. The war call pirates were ruthless, murdering people, pillaging, and also kidnapping people, not to mention burning down settlements to the ground. Imagine having this done 27 times a year in your land. As stated in MSCO's article, a brief documentary survey of Japanese pirate activities in Korea in the 13th to 15th centuries, the war call pirates raided in groups of 2 to 500 vessels of various sizes. The number of people on these vessels ranged from 10 people up to 40 per vessel. So times that by 2 to 500, that's a lot of people. Obviously, amidst this carnage, the Korean government were going to do something about this. In the year 1389, Korean General Park Wee launched an invasion on the pirate base at Tsushima, destroying 300 pirate vessels and rescuing more than 100 Korean hostages. Then, 30 years later, in the year 1419, Korean General Yi Jong-mu led a fleet of over 200 ships and over 17,000 men and attacked the pirate hub of Tsushima again. This event is known in history as the Oei Invasion, Oei spelt O-E-I, but apologies if I didn't get the pronunciation correctly. This time, they completely destroyed the war call base and negotiated a truce with the rulers of the island at the time, the So clan, spelt S-O. Under this agreement, Tsushima Island was given special trading privileges with Korea, and in return, the Japanese would stop organising pirate raids to Korea. From a political perspective, the Koreans also worked with the Japanese government at the time, the Ashikaga Shogunate, in capturing war call pirates and clamping down piracy, and it's important to note that the Japanese government at this stage was also opposed to war call piracy. This marked the end of the first major wave of war call piracy, and for a while, the coasts of East Asia were peaceful. Emphasis on, for a while. The story is far from over, because the war call would rise up once again and create even more havoc. So if you're thinking, oh, the story's over, what, what else am I going to listen to in my car? Well, there's plenty more to come. Hold your bamboo, guys. This is where the story of the second major wave of war call pirates comes in. Listeners, we will now need to travel from Korea all the way to China. Around the same time the Koreans in Goryeo were being rampaged by war call pirates, China was going through some major changes too. In 1368, the ethnic Han Chinese defeated the Mongols and chased them away. In the process, the leader, Zhu Yuanzhang, founded the Ming Dynasty and became known as the Hongwu Emperor, Hongwu spelt H-O-N-G-W-U. 
The Hongwu Emperor is the same guy in episode 3 of my podcast, the one who grew up as a beggar before becoming the emperor. The Hongwu Emperor was really stoked that he was the emperor, but he was still nervous at the same time. He had fought a lot of different rebel groups and rivals to claim the throne, and these people, his enemies, were still out there trying to steal the throne away from him. Word had spread that these enemies had been conspiring with pirates off the Chinese coast, and this made the Hongwu Emperor sweat. Maritime activity at that time was high, and many people were sailing in and out of China for trade and travel, and the emperor believed that it would be easy for people to sneak in and out of the country to conduct activities that would harm the security and stability of the newly created empire. Hence, in the year 1371, three years into his reign, the Hongwu Emperor introduced the Hai Jin policy. Hai Jin, spelt H-A-I-J-I-N. Hai Jin, translated into English as sea ban, was a draconian policy that basically stopped anyone from going out to sea to conduct private commercial activities, such as trading, business, and even fishing. Yes, anyone, and for any reason. Going out to sea to trade? Nope. Going out to sea to travel? Nope. Going out to sea for some deep sea fishing? No way, Jose. Whilst the Heijin policy banned private trade, the government, funnily enough, still wanted to trade with other countries. So, the Ming government introduced the tributary trade system. How this tributary trade system worked was, foreign countries would send diplomatic envoys to Ming China every so often, with the frequency of visits determined by the Ming government. For example, once every year, twice every year, once every two years, etc. The envoys of the foreign nation, or tributary state, would arrive in China and present China with a whole bunch of money and or goods. The quantity and type of goods delivered was predetermined by a list given by the Chinese to that tributary state prior to their visit to pay tribute. Then after the Chinese received these goods, they would <coughs> gift the tributary nation a specified amount of goods in return, which was always more than what they had received from that tributary state. So for example, if I was Ming China and you were the tributary state, I give you a list telling you to give me, for example, two boxes of bananas next time you visit. Next time when you come to China, you give me those two boxes of bananas and in return, I might give you say, 10 boxes of mandarin oranges and some gold bars. The exchange of goods could only take place in certain cities on China's coastline, where offices of maritime trade were opened up in these cities to facilitate the tribute trade. These offices were known in Chinese as Shibosi, spelt S-H-I-B-O-S-I. The tributary trade method worked with Ming China because they could control trade and who they were trading with. But obviously, with many systems, things become lax, and whilst the Heijin Sea Policy was still in place, enforcement of it gradually softened and private trade started happening again. That is, until a certain incident. This incident happened in the year 1523 in the city of Ningbo, spelt N-I-N-G-B-O. 
Ningbo was one of those cities with a Shibosu Maritime Trade Office, which was set up specifically to trade with Japan. The de facto rulers at the time in Japan was the Ashikaga shogunate, ruling Japan on behalf of the nominal ruler, the Japanese emperor. The Ashikaga shogunate was a military family with Ashikaga as their family name. The family's leader was the shogun, who was also the highest commander of the Japanese army, like a general. And the first shogun had taken power in Japan in the year 1338. Then, after the first Ashikaga shogun died, his son took his place, and so on and so forth. Ironically, by the 1500s, the Ashikaga shogunate themselves lost power in Japan, and power was instead in the hands of the people under the shogun, who were called daimyo, spelt D-A-I-M-Y-O. Daimyos were powerful feudal lords who owned large areas throughout Japan. When you have a bunch of powerful landowners with a powerless leader, what's going to happen? They're obviously going to fight amongst themselves to see who gets to be top dog. And these daimyos took this conflict to China, to the city of Ningbo. In the year 1523 in Ningbo, a fight broke out in the city between two trade representatives of two different daimyo clans, the Oichi, O-U-C-H-I, and the Hosokawa, H-O-S-O-K-A-W-A, clans. The fight kind of went down like this. <coughs> the Oichi trade representative reached China and said, Ah, konnichiwa, Ningbo, China. I am here to get my hands on some fabulous Chinese goodies. I've got my tribute list that the Chinese gave us the last time we were here. The Weichi trade rep then went to the Shibosu office in Ningbo, where he met the Chinese official working there. Ni hao, Chinese official man. The Chinese guy replied, Konnichiwa, Japanese man. Yeah, okay, let's cut to the chase. I've got here my tribute list, and the goods on the list are on our boats. So, when are you going to give us your goods? The Chinese official was confused. I am sorry, Mr. Japanese man. I do not know what you're talking about. We've already given our goods away. The Oichi trade rep was stunned. What? What What are you talking about? I'm the bloody Japanese trade representative. I've got the goods that your government wants, and I'm here to exchange them with whatever you're going to give me. The Chinese official replied, I'm sorry, but the Japanese trade representative is already here. Huh? Yes, Shensheng, he is right here. Hey you, come over here and tell this man who you are. Another Japanese man comes over, and the first Japanese man is shocked. Hey, I know you. Ranko Zuisa, you're from the Hosokawa clan. Ah, yes, Kendo Sosetsu, Konnichiwa, you're the man from the Oichi clan. Ranko, what are you doing here? Mmm, trading with the Chinese? Duh. Huh, trading? We are the ones who have been trading with the Chinese. What are you going to use to trade them? We've got the list. Kendo, you amateur, look what this is. He gives Kendo a list. What? How the heck did you get a tribute list? Not telling. Tell me. No. Tell me. No. Tell me, you piece of sushi poo. No, we've got the Chinese goods now, and we're going back to Japan. Bye. 
Oh no, Ranko, you Hosokawa sushi poo. You're not getting with this, you bloody piece of sh. Kendo Susetsu, the trade representative of the Oichi clan, got so mad at the Hosokawa trade representative and the Hosokawa clan for stealing their trade with China that they led their men and chased the Hosokawa men all around Ningbo, burning and pillaging the city in the process. The local government sent some of their men to stop the fighting, but they ended up getting themselves killed as well. This conflict has been known famously in history as the Ningbo Incident. When the Ming Emperor and the government in Beijing heard about the news, they were really mad. And their response was extreme. Like really extreme. Like they completely shut off tribute trade with Japan and cut ties with them, and began reinforcing the Haijin Seaban policy. And they clamped down hard. Punishment was severe. For example, coastal villages were organised into groups of households If one member of that household was caught trading illegally, everyone in all the households of that group would be executed. From the government's point of view, it's easy to just stop something completely. But what they didn't think of was the social and economic consequences that a ban on trade would create. Many Chinese people living on the coasts of Zhejiang, Fujian and Guangdong provinces relied on the sea for their livelihoods. By cutting off the people's opportunities to go out to sea, to fish, or to trade with foreigners, how else were they going to earn money to support their families back at home? As a result, many Chinese people living on those coasts had to turn to piracy. They had no choice. A Chinese official at the time named Tang Shu was quoted saying, Hai jin yu yan, zai huo yu sheng, which means, the more severe the Haijin ban is, the greater the number of pirates. Chinese merchants, as well as local fishermen and farmers living close to the sea, began conducting illegal smuggling activity on the islands close to the shore. A lot of this happened in the Zhejiang and Fujian provinces. To give you all a better idea of where it is geographically, they are two regions along the southeast coast of China and there are many islands dotted close to the mainland along these two regions. This made things easy, because these islands were just far enough to avoid the authorities, but close enough to shore to access the goods required for trade. The most famous of these islands was an island called Shuangyu, spelt S-H-U-A-N-G-Y-U, where many Chinese, Japanese and Portuguese people gathered to conduct illegal trade and smuggling activities. Shuangyu was controlled by the Shu Syndicate, headed by Shu Dong, and another man named Wang Zhi, or noted in some other sources as Wang Zhi, spelt W-A-N-G-Z-H-I. Wang Zhi was perhaps the most powerful merchant pirate during that period of time. Wang Zhi would bring Chinese goods from the mainland such as saltpeter, silk and cotton, and then trade these with the Japanese and the Portuguese on Shuangyu. It was said that he had a fleet of several hundred vessels, and he was able to assemble a crew of a hundred thousand people that would help him run his (coughs) enterprise. Whilst his crew were mainly Chinese, he also hired Japanese mercenaries to help protect his cargo from other pirate groups. These mercenaries were primarily ronins, 
who were skilled samurai fighters who had either lost their masters or had been banished by their masters and were seeking alternate means to make a living. Wang Zhu's illegal empire became a threat to the Ming government, and in the year 1546, they appointed a man named Zhu Wan, spelt Z-H-U-W-A-N, to handle the crisis. Zhu Wan responded to this crisis by taking a heavy-handed approach. In the year 1548, he led a large fleet onto Shuangyu and destroyed the island, killing hundreds of smugglers and burnt down all the settlements on the island. The bad news, however, was that Wang Zhi escaped, and he wasn't going to give up. Wang Zhi then re-established himself on another island. Then, in the year 1551, with the help of Japanese daimyo lords on the Goto Islands and Hirado on Kyushu, whom he had been friends with for a long time, he reorganised another group of pirates. And in the year 1552, the following year, he named himself as the King of Hui and declared that he was a <clears throat> protector of the seas. Hmm. Google Translate translates that as the number one OG pirate of China and certified nut job. His crew began launching waves of raids on Chinese coastal settlements in the Zhejiang region. The attacks were mainly centered around smaller villages and towns. However, they also had the ability to lay siege and take controls of cities as well. Cities such as Hangzhou and Jiaxing were examples of cities attacked by the war call pirates. Wang Zhi was probably very angry and was getting revenge at the government for destroying his Shuangyu island. This wave of pirate attacks has been historically known as the Jiajing War Call Raids, known as such because it happened during the reign of the Jiajing Emperor. Many other pirate groups besides Wang Zhi also took part in these raids, and some were organised by Wang Zhi, whilst others operated by themselves and were rivals of Wang Zhi. With many places being ravaged by pirates, everyone was looking towards the government and were like, Bro, can you help us out a little? The government obviously was going to do something about it. So in the year 1552, the government decided to... Uh, decided to... Ah, <sighs> uh, you know what? I'm actually getting a bit tired now. So I'm going to end the episode right here. <laughs> You'll have to wait till next week to figure out what happens next. Got him. Stay tuned for next week's part 2 episode of the War Call Pirates. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day or evening, and I'll see you all next time on the Bamboo History Podcast. Bye for now.